What a week. Yanny or? Which is it? I want to have fun a little bit right now, but I know this is a sermon. I'm not supposed to have fun. We can't have fun in a sermon, right? It is an interesting question. Um, for it does illustrate something that's going to happen in this sermon. It was a lot of fun. Um, I'm a Yanny person, uh, personally. I don't know about you, but, um, but what transpired was this interesting conversation that I don't think got real deep, so don't get me wrong, I'm not going to push this too far, but there's this interesting reality, it was such a shock that that people would look at each other and go, you're crazy, you're just crazy, that's not what it's heard, hearing is believing, and we were confronted with the reality that at least in this sense, due to some, you know, noise issues, that, that actually hearing is not necessarily true, or it's not the whole truth. And nothing perhaps better illustrates this sermon uh, as this week in that context, because we we are entering into this conversation about morality. We've been doing it now for many weeks, and particularly the, the issue of moral clarity. And today we look at the ninth commandment. I'm reminded of a of a work that sociologist, theologian Jacques Ellul uh, uh, wrote in the 1980s. He entitled this little piece, The Humiliation of the Word. Now, by the humiliation of the word then, 30-plus years ago, he was concerned then about how words were being replaced by images, as if our media, our new media of truth-telling. That is to say that he was concerned that a person who thinks by images becomes less and less capable of thinking by reasoning, end quote. Of course, he was thinking then of the cinematic images that were replacing our world in in books, if you will. The rise of the TV, the rise of the cinema, uh, the rise of the 24-7 news cycle just then beginning to emerge where the uh, you know breaking news was being told less in words and more in images. The result then was, of course, he would say, lies and perjury. Lies and perjury, not perhaps as an intentional thing, though perhaps that's true, but lies and perjury by means of uncontextualized images. We have now come to discern that images, seeing, is not believing. That we all know that images have a frame of reference and that we don't see around the frame. What looks like an excited crowd could be a conjured up assembly. And we wouldn't see that. And on it goes. And so the result then was lies and perjury by means of these uncontextualized images Allure's, Allure's most worst nightmare was at the time just emerging when these images hit again the 24-7 news cycle. But what would Jacques Allure think about today? I mean, what would he call today the humiliation of the word? Could he have possibly imagined the world of hashtag Twitter effect of words without context or sentences. Just think about 
what that symbol represents. Hashtag tweet effect of words without sentences. Enter the world, then, of an uncontextualized word. Where words now are being detached from reality. They become the new reality, these words. The new truth, where just saying something is newsworthy. And news reporting, which then becomes the new truth that drives the 24-7 news cycle. How would Paul engage such a world? This digital world of words without sentences. Well, believe it or not, there is something that transcends all times and places. And we believe that to be this word of God. A word that transcends any manifestation or form of of media. And Paul, I think, would say pretty much the same thing today as he did in the first century. Lies and perjury. That characterized the lawlessness of the world in his days. A place inhabited by Yes, lies and perjurers. Oh, it's true. The, the elementals of the situation then was really not so different. Even if the forms that these elements inhabit are vastly different. Then, much like today, Paul was concerned for the growing moral and redemptive darkness in the city of Ephesus. And perhaps more importantly, how the church was losing its moral clarity and its light as a witness in the midst of the Ephesus darkness. He exhorts the Ephesians in chapter 5, Therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't be like them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now what's important about this was that Paul's concern was not for the sake of being a self-righteous, pharisaical, moralistic, self-congratulating, isolated congregation of Christians in the middle of Ephesus. Quite the contrary. His beatific vision of the church was as a new society or a renewed society in the midst of the world that would have this enticing effect upon it. Where the people would see the church as a city upon a hill or a lampstand on a a lamp on a stand and in a way that would attract people to the redemptive, life-giving, flourishing manners of God. He envisioned a day when the church would we the, the very image of God as the church was made to be in the image of God. A restoration of humanity itself by virtue of the gospel. And yet his concern in Timothy was that this whole program of God in Ephesus was being circumvented and, and denied by virtue of the kind of teaching or the lack thereof that was going on in Ephesus. And Timothy, he's writing to his protege to go to Ephesus and straighten things out because he's described how there were those now in Ephesus that desired to be teachers of the law, that is, moral clarity, 
and where that should go without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He speaks about them in that day, how people had a low patience for preaching and teaching. How they would desire to hear what is of least resistance, even the church. Wanting to define preaching and teaching that made them feel a little more comfortable about themselves and the world they lived in. He says it this way. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings. Desiring to have their ears tickled, he would describe them. So Paul's commission to Timothy and the purpose of this letter, go to Ephesus and correct them per the authorized teachings of the apostles. And the very key to their error, he says, was that they did not understand the good use of the law. That's a really important phrase in this passage. The good use of the law, or the one, the one, how to use the law lawfully, the way the law intended. Now we know how that is according to Timothy. And Timothy would have known it well as well. In verse 11, he says, the right use of the law, or the law used lawfully, is, quote, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see, law, if preached incomplete of the gospel, brings you to the worst of things. Perhaps that's why the church today often pits law against gospel. But for Paul, he would have nothing of it. And I remind you, if you've been in the sermon series, how therefore we've described what Paul references here is this law cycle or this cycle of redemption. How it is that God gave to the world his law, moral clarity. A moral clarity that true, when confronted with sin, would create a moral humiliation. If we fully understood the law, it would bring us to a place of humiliation and neediness. But that would then direct us to moral redemption. That is, a redemption of morality in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who represented us as our substitute in law-keeping, so that by grace through faith in Christ and his work of the law, we as humanity would no longer be afraid of the law. We're no longer afraid of it because before the law just condemned us. And you can understand why we would therefore want to collect around us those who would not make us feel guilty. But when we're set free from the condemnation of the law, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which is the gospel of Paul, then we're restored to the law because no longer being afraid of it, law can do what it's intended to do, which is to restore us in our humanity. To restore us in this great and beautiful vocation to image God as his priestly, royal priestly humanity on earth. And that's the whole context of what we're doing today. What does it mean then that we would reconsider the clarity the moral clarity of the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Paul references that ninth commandment here by reference to the world that is being filled more and more with, quote, liars and perjurers. And I would suggest to you that you've had your hand 
head in the sand. I don't even know how anyone could approach this sermon and say this is not relevant today. I mean, we're living in a world where tweets and slander and, and abusive language, words without sentences, words without context, that is. We hear words like fake news and, and it's just, we don't know what the truth is. And we start talking like it and we start engaging it as the church. We become just like them with our tweets without sentences. And so we need to hear this sermon. But eventually we need to hear it in the full use of the law in a manner that's going to bring us to an amazing grace and restoration. Would you dare to hear the law of God proclaimed today? Let's pray. Father, be with us, please. Let this be more than a moralistic exercise. Please, God, help us draw us to your beauty, the beauty of truth and grace together, the beauty of Christ, the perfect man, and the beauty of what Christ has in store for us, a restored, beautified, sanctified humanity as lights in the midst of the darkness. Please come. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the exposition, good news, is quite simple, at least on the surface. We have two words, and they're really quite plain. One is the word liars, and that's right. It means one who lies. Do I need to define that? Check it off. We got that expositional done. And then we have another word called perjurers, and of course that's lying in the context of in a legal context. So lying and lying or false witness in the context of, of a legality where we're perjuring ourselves, if you will. And in their most concrete and outward meanings, we pretty much know what Paul's talking about in a world of lying and perjury. These words, of course, are related to the ninth commandment, Exodus twenty sixteen: you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's restated a couple of chapters later in Exodus 23. You shall not spread false reports. You shall not join hands with a wicked man and be a malicious gossip. Thou shalt not bear false witness now related to anything that renders a false report about anyone uh, as related to the kind of gangrene spread of, of gossip or slander. Now you see it starts to go and get unpacked a little bit, don't you? By false witness, it is meant those who lie. And in a legal context, those who perjure themselves. It's amazing um, how much in Scripture speaks to this issue. But I particularly want to reference throughout the sermon the book of Proverbs, the wisdom sayings. Because again, remember what Proverbs does. It takes the law and it it speaks to it in a manner that, that... is directly related to its wisdom. The wisdom that brings flourishing to humanity. And so the Proverbs speaks of false witness, lying and perjuring this way, for instance. In in Proverbs 6, 19, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. 
25, 18, a man who bears fault witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow. Proverbs 14, 5, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. That breathes out. That is amazing because, because usually when the scripture speaks of the breath or breathing, it's, it's life-giving. And here we, of course, are using that metaphor as a life-taking. It breathes out lies. And then Proverbs 27, give me, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. In other words, who are the adversaries? Those who bear false witness against me have risen against me and they breathe out violence. This, again, breathing out violence. It's, it's almost the ancient way of saying it goes viral. It becomes part of the wind. Isn't it amazing how the scripture just seems to know? We think we're so, you know, progressed. But even back then, the ninth commandment was about things that go viral. Proverbs 18.7, then the mouths of the fools are their ruin and their lips a snare to themselves. The words of a whisperer, that is slanderer, gossiper. It's interesting, they're whisperers. I mean, there's a kind of cowardness, cowardness to this form of lying and perjuring. When they whisper it, without the courage to stand publicly and say it out loud, they whisper it. And so the proverb really gets at this. And it says how it is that these are like delicious morsels to them. They go down into the inner parts of their bodies. I mean, already do you begin to see, as we unwrap this thing, what started out to be a pretty clear definition of an outward negative behavior? We're beginning to discern the depth of the ninth commandment as having to do with the impact of our words stated overtly. That is publicly or covertly that is whispered upon the, and the way it has this detrimental effect upon the peace and the love and the flourishing. I mean, I mean, did you hear those language? To violate the ninth commandment concerns truth telling is to sow discord among brothers, we're told. People who ought to be friends. People who ought to love one another. And how words can just destroy that beauty, beautiful love. It goes on to say how it's like a war club. I mean, do you know what a war club is, right? It's, it's, this, it's like this axe-like anvil. And it's just smashing things. Words. Smashing things. And things to pieces. Or a sword. Or a sharp arrow in its deadly effects. Is an act of violence, that is, to lie and to perjure. Even as there is something about our sinful nature that finds ourselves morbidly attracted to lying. I mean, here, and I, I want to just circumvent the rest of this moral clarity portion of the sermon and go, man, I'm needing the gospel right now. I mean, and it's going to get you there, so I just want to keep reminding you of this. But already I'm beginning to sense something true about this in my heart. You know, Paul says in, in chapter 1 that, that the curse of sin is that God would deliver us not over to what we hate, but what we love. The curse of sin 
It's not that God delivers us over to what we hate, but what we love. And it's what we love when, when rotten love that destroys us. And that's how it ends in chapter 1. After these three segments of he delivered them over to, he delivered them over to, he delivered them over to, and then it goes on to say that not only do they do these things, but they approve of those who do these things. And that's the way it is with the Ninth Commandment. There's something in me already that's thinking, why am I so attracted to turning on the 24-7 and listening to just one Word without sentence after another. You know I mean that by now as, as a metaphor. In the age of the tweet, we've now learned to hear news and tweet, tweeted, twitted, whatever it is, form. I like twit. It just sounds so much better. I know it's not what it is, but I say twit all the time. So these twits, doesn't that just kind of get the sense of how gross it is? These twits in the form of serious news. Twits all throughout our country just like gangrene spreading with the power of the digital age and the social media. And why, why, Lord, why do I even turn it on? Why would I even want to be part of the trafficking system and let my ears hear it? Because they're all words without sentences. Words that have no due diligence and context behind them more times than not. And they become the news. They become the truth. (laughs) It goes on. We begin to see something deep about what's happening here and why it's just so horrific. For at its heart, you see, what is false witness? It is a sin against The ultimate command that drives all the commandments. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. For God's sake, people, love your neighbor. As an expression of what it means to love God who made your neighbor. And who died for your neighbor. If just for a moment we would consider these people that are being spoken of in the twits without without sentences, and that they were died for by Jesus Christ, potentially. That they were made in the image of God. How could I possibly find in my heart such ugliness that not only do I do these things, but I approve of people who do that. I love it. Exodus 20 says, Thou shalt not bear false witness against a neighbor. That word neighbor is such an enduring way of speaking of humanity, isn't it? Don't miss that. Paul interprets this in Ephesians 5. Remember, the ones he's sending Timothy to. And he says, put off falsehood. Speak truth, each one with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. How would that change how we speak? We thought of him as a neighbor, my spiritual human neighbor, made in the image of God. It's interesting that Paul there is referencing Zechariah, chapter 8. He talks this way, and he's referencing, again, the ninth commandment, the prophet Zechariah. 
These are the things which you shall do. Speak truth, everyone with his neighbor. Judge truth carefully and peaceably. Judgment in your gates and let none of you devise evil in his heart against a neighbor. And love not a false oath for all these things I hate, saith the Lord. Man, when when I get a scripture and God says something like, I hate this. I, my, I get, that, that picks my attention up, doesn't it? God says, I hate it. I hate it. What does he hate? All of this stuff that devises evil against a neighbor. It begins to tell you that there's something about truth that we don't quite fully understand. It's true. That the opposite of truth from God's perspective is more than just error, as in a wrong fact, but it's deceit. But it's more than just deceit, it's truth spoken not for the purpose of love. I want you to just hold your breath on that one for a minute. It's going to change everything. Paul will say in Ephesians, speak the truth. What? If you know it, in love. That means true truth is truth for the sake of love. It's deceitful truth. It's deceitfully used when in any way it diminishes or hurts or tears down or weakens the humanness and the redemptiveness that God has planned for humanity. Proverbs 12, 17. He who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness deceit. And again, this word deceit is getting not not to its factualness, but in its misuse. Some people will call this maybe misinformation. A fact stated unseasonably. That is in a context that's not for the true use of that fact is in fact a lie. Do I need to say it again? A truth that is spoken in a context that is not for the purpose of that fact, which is love, is now a lie, even if it's a true fact. That's misinformation that doesn't tell the whole story or limits the frame of reference or true information to a end contrary to God. True speaking, therefore, is very close to God's heart. Proverbs 12 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. There it comes. I mean, it's not often you hear this kind of language. Abomination? I mean, that means he regurgitates it. Do you know that? It makes him sick. But those who deal truthfully are his delight. Proverbs 23 to 23 Buy the truth and do not sell it. That is, hold it as great and precious as a treasure. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Psalms 51, behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. Now, uh uh-oh, what's that? Oh, you mean it's not just what we say, but it's what we think? It's even our thoughts? It's, It's even our attitudes? 
I need to, I'm, I'm, I'm about undone, okay? I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm starting to really feel beat up here by the word. And if I stopped here, this would be downright cruel. No, really, it would be. It would just be downright cruel. And I'm sorry, so sorry, if that's your experience with Christianity. that could possibly leave you in this place. That's not where we're going to go. I promise. Hold on. But do you feel this way about truth? Are we beginning to get the sense of God's heart about it? To speak the truth in love? God is the author of truth. Satan, we know, is described as the father of lies and deception. John 1.14. John 8.44. 1 Corinthians 13.4. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, that is, the sins of others, but rejoices in the truth. Paul will say in Ephesians, let no rotten, is the word he uses. Some translators just translated evil, but it literally it's the word, let no rotten words I proceed from your mouth, but only those which are good for building up or edifying in order to give grace to those who hear. What that tells you about the ninth commandment is not only is it a prohibition against what is negative, but Paul here, rightly, as it would be done in Leviticus and Exodus, if we go to read the chapters about the ninth commandment, is that what is stated in the negative implies the positive. So for a law to state do not, the implication is it will be fleshed out in God's law would be, and therefore do this. In other words, it's not just the sins of omission that, that the law of the ninth commandment speaks to, those things which we don't do that we should, but it's also the sins of commission, those things we do that we shouldn't. It's both. So if the law says thou shalt not, that's the sin of commission. But then Paul makes it clear, interpreting the Old Testament, as, as you would see in the Old Testament, there are a whole series of laws of what you're supposed to say and do to speak truth and love. But Paul summarizes it this way. Again, let no rotten words. Now that could be what kind of word now? That could be true facts spoken for unloving purposes or unjust purposes. What would require a word to be spoken in order to satisfy justice? What would be required for a word to be spoken in order to satisfy love? Two really important questions, because according to God's law, Christian, making it a true fact is not, in fact, not lying. Lying and perjury, again, is anything stated as a truth even if for the, the wrong truth of love or justice purpose. And the scripture's going to say a lot about the context then. It's, the scripture's going to do a lot to take away the hashtag twits, tweets, without sentences, context we live in. It's going to absolutely just disband that concept. There is no such thing as true truth in a tweet quite frankly, even if it's factually correct. If you understand what the scripture here is saying. For these words, he didn't say he didn't say falsities. These words he describes as rotten words. Words that in effect don't 
produce, uh, is not for the good or the building up of those that we speak about. I mean, so for instance, if you were to come to a place, as the scripture acknowledges, that, that someone needs to be rebuked, someone needs to be corrected, something needs to be done, what's the context for doing it where it could be said, you've really done it in a way where this person has an opportunity to actually be restored by your words, to be built up, to be edified, to be brought to Christ even? How would you do it? Would you scream at someone across the street? You, I remember when we were at the University of Georgia especially, I was campus minister there for many years, and uh, what was this guy's name? He'd come to campus, and his whole purpose, we called him Prophet Something, Prophet Doom. We had some little phrase for him. If you're down south in those days, you know what I'm talking about. They were going all over the place. But they would sit around, and they'd, everybody would walk away. Everybody walked by, and they, they would, you know, they would just condemn. You are in all these horrific words. You are the whores of the world. You are the blah, you know, and all this kind of stuff would go on. And I'm thinking, you know, I mean, just common sense. You know, says, there's no gospel in this. There's no even truth in this. It's just, it's just rotten. Just pure rotten. And I'm sad again that too often Christianity has is perhaps in reaction to certain things going on in the world, have resorted to such rotten words. So we're all culpable here. Rotten words. Words that are spoken for the self of some kind of self-righteousness, maybe. Some kind of false morality, maybe. I don't know, but they're in our hearts, and I'm sad that I have partaken of it by virtue of my own participation in the life the church, and maybe things I've said. It's, why is it part of us? It's, it's sad. Rotten words that tend to decay a person and their reputation, to destroy a person, rather than to offer salvation and redemption to a person, or forgiveness to a person, or restoration of their character, said in a way that a person would be inclined to think, this is love for me. It's interesting in Proverbs 22 how much of this false witness, and you can understand it by inference, relates to the good name of another person. You know, it's interesting in Scripture how the most precious thing that a human person has in this world is their name, their reputation. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, says the proverb. There's a there's a proverb that goes with it. Who he who steals my purse steals trash. That tis something, nothing, but twas mine, tis his, and his been slave to thousands. But he that steals from me my good name robs me of what that which does not enrich him and makes me poor indeed. Isn't that interesting? That's kind of an old saying, but to parse it out... He, it's commenting on this proverb, and the essence of it is to say that, that, you know, when someone steals my purse or my money, well, at least it enriches them. I mean, at least they get something out of the deal. It's kind of a crass thing to say and leaves me poor. But in this case, when you steal my reputation, you get nothing from it. But it makes me totally poor. It's a serious thing to steal one's reputation. 
Proverbs, one who covers a transgression therefore seeks love. But he that repeats a matter alienates a neighbor. Speaking of the ninth commandment. Did you hear what he said? There is a time to conceal facts for the sake of love. That those facts then can be revealed in a context that has a genuine opportunity for justice and mercy. The two things we're always to seek with all of our words. God requires this of you that you love justice and mercy and walk humbly before your God, says the prophet. Love justice, love mercy. The two can never be separated. John Murray is commenting on this very thing. And um, I'll have to leave us at this. But what he's basically saying is, is that concealment, he quote, John Murray wrote a, a, a little a piece on the principles of conduct and the sanctity of truth in 1957. He says, concealment is sometimes more true than truth-telling. Something of what we've been saying. Example is Murray reflects on God's instructions to Samuel to conceal his plans to anoint David, his king, from uh, 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 from King Saul at the time. And so he instructs Samuel to go into Jerusalem for the purpose of making sacrifice, etc. But just don't tell the whole truth. And, of course, it creates a big debate. What kind of instruction is that, God? In our world where we've divided truth from love, it will sound pretty cynical. It will sound kind of conniving, like, you know, uh, sophistry of some sort. What kind of God would say, go tell the half-truth? It's not a lie. He was going to make sacrifice. But just don't announce in advance that he's making a sacrifice or is related to the anointing of a new king, David. And you're thinking in your head, what? In this modern day and age where we've ripped words from context, that is, words from truth and love, both? It sounds pretty bad to us. But here's how he goes on to describe it. The passage makes clear, he says, that it is proper under certain circumstances to conceal or withhold part of the truth. Saul had no right to know the whole purpose of Samuel's mission to Jesse, nor was Samuel under obligation to disclose it. Concealment was not lying. It is necessary to guard the jealousy Guard with jealousy the distinction between partial truth and untruth. This instance gives us no warrant whatsoever for maintaining that in concealing the truth we may affirm untruth. Again, I've explained it. What does it mean to violate the ninth commandment? It's to forget the person who is our neighbor in what we say. Because it's that part of the commandment. Don't bear false witness against thy neighbor. Neighbor. That then drives the whole thing. We know a context for justice. Proverbs makes it clear. Proverbs 18. The one who first states a case seems right until someone else comes and cross-examines it. Timothy Keller just put out four statements of things that he thinks our denomination should, should be thinking deeply about. One of those four statements relates to this issue of uncontextualized slander. Slander, particularly in this case, he's talking about how we speak of each other. He's, of course, been the the subject of some slander as a very public speaker, even within the denomination. And he decries the point that there was a day, maybe back in the 90s, when, when if you had a problem with another minister, you would 
pick up the phone and call them and say, you know what? Matthew 18 tells me what to do with that, right? Matthew 18, if you know it, says, if you've got a problem, go to this brother personally. Keep it quiet. Keep it contained. It's not everybody's business. And see if it can be resolved. You may find that you're, you don't know the full context. And Teller comes, goes on and says how, you know, how mo- lots of the stuff that's been published about him. He says, I think at least a lot of it just, just not true if they just knew the full context. And then there are other areas where we could say we agree to disagree, but at least we would know that there was a heart underneath it that was intending to do true and good with it. How much could be reconciled if we just get off the blocks? If we just get off the twits? And I like twits. I'm sorry. I'm going to keep saying it. But that's, you see, the heart of this. The one who first states a case against seems right. Guys, when you are watching 24-7, when you're watching or listening to a twit, you are looking at rotten stuff. Except so far as it reports that which has already been vetted through a due process. And if you are participating in this, it's rotten. As it would be for me. It's just rotten. Is it about saving those that we speak of? Is it about justice, really? What God loves? Now again, this is nothing about this means that we are supposed to keep our mouth shut in the case, in the face of injustice. No. Quite the contrary. Speak the truth. But speak it in love, which means it's going to change the place, the time, and the way that you speak it. So I want to end just with this summary, if I could. It's not just about morals, this sermon. It's really about our spiritual condition. The law is spiritual, directing us in our entire person, not merely in overt be- to overt behaviors, but it reveals the condition of our heart. I hope at this point you've been brought to a place of humiliation. If, if the clarity of the law has been even remotely delivered today, its right effect would be first to bring you to a place of humility. Martin Luther once said that as I'm a Christian, as I grow old, as I grow grow more and more as a Christian, I become more and more unholy in my own mind. Something's wrong with your trajectory if you're becoming in your own mind more and more holy. Because the more you grow as a Christian, the more you understand the moral clarity of God, that beautiful, glorious, love-facing, merciful, just moral clarity of God that's so beautiful, that would so restore humanity. Oh, you could say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. But you couldn't say that if I stopped there. So Luther goes on to say, yes, it's true. As a Christian, I, I sin more today than I than I even remotely sinned when I first became a Christian. And what he means by that is he's now aware of God's holiness. But then he adds to it, but the cross of Jesus was itsy-bitsy small when I first became a Christian. And as that cross has come to bear upon each expansion of God's law revealed in my heart and soul, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger so that Luther could say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy 
by law, for it convicts me of my sin, but more than that, it directs me to a sinless Savior. Oh, how I love Jesus Christ. I was singing this song that we, we sung uh, there that, right before this, and of course, I've been packing in this sermon all week, and I was brought to tears. I was brought to tears. My hands were up, and I'm going, man, man, did I need to hear that after this sermon that I've been preaching to myself all week. You think you got it bad. i got to listen to it all week. <laughs> and I'm going, man, I'm just sitting there right before I preach the sermon, tearing up, you know, emotional because of this cross is waiting me after this sermon. And I'm offering it to you, brothers and sisters. If you're sitting here and you've been rejecting Christianity because of the moralism, the Phariseeism, the looking and pointing fingers, I just want you to know that's not Christianity. And if you've seen Christians twitting and tweeting and slandering and attracted to all this stuff, well, bad shame on us. The rotten stuff is inside of us all. We know it. And if you're coming here then thinking that, oh man, I'm, I gotta find me some kind of church that's got it all together. Well, you've come to the wrong place. What we just learned is we don't have it all together. Really, we don't. But we do have a Savior who does. Would you please consider Him? Consider Him. That in this life journey that just never satisfies, in a world that just never seems to live up to what we know in our heart the world was meant to be, When I look at you, the beautifulness of you sitting in this pews, how gorgeous and beautiful you are as people made in the image of God, oh, how it saddens us that we suffer so much. And so much of that suffering is directly related to the sin that is in our hearts. And so we offer to you something that is not the equivalent of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get yourself together, people. Make yourself more moral, people, because if you don't, you're going to hell. No, that's not what we're doing. We're saying, confess your sins honestly, people. Just admit it. Come out in the closet. Yeah, it's true. I don't really speak rotten words. Somehow I have this weird affection for it. God, please forgive me. And God's answer is done. Done. It's that simple. That amazing, this grace. You know, you heard the song, Amazing Grace. It's really amazing. Knock. And it didn't say, walk around and do penance for three days. Do the little beads for for an hour. It didn't say that. It says, knock. The door shall be open. Seek. You'll find. Just ask for it. It's done. It's promised. And then come to this table and just celebrate. We call it the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving meal, to remember that we're saved by grace through faith alone, not of yourself, lest anyone could boast, lest anyone condemn others. It's a free gift of God. Just receive it. Amen.